This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 31st of January 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. Good morning. Good morning. How have you been? I've been well. And yourself? Uh, eh, could be better, I guess. Still have to work for my money. Would be nice if I was a millionaire, but... <laughs> but but your riches come from working in the joy of big data. Yes, and the podcast, of course. I mean, <laughs> of course, of if, course. I, if I were rich, I probably wouldn't do this anymore. So, although <laughs> might have more time to prepare for these things. Ah, uh, yeah, then they wouldn't be as spontaneous and exciting. True, 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 true. Anyway, what do you have to talk about today? First thing we should mention, of course, is our raffle. It's still going on. If people haven't uh, heard about this yet, spread the word. If you want to know more information, listen to our previous episodes, which you have probably already done, of course. But we, uh, Dave actually explained everything about the raffle there. So just a reminder here that the raffle is still going on this episode and next episode. So get your shout-outs in. Make sure you get all the raffle tickets you get so you can have a chance to win the beautiful prize, which is... Which is a free pass to the DataWorks Summit in Munich. It gives you uh, the ability to enter all the sessions, all the keynotes, and uh, the exhibition hall as well. So, pretty good prize. Yeah, you forgot the most excellent thing about that. I mean, it's now confirmed that both Dave and I will be present there. Absolutely. So, you'll get to meet us. Yes. Hooray! It's not a turn-off. <laughs> not really, it isn't. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to meet us, obviously. It's, it's not mandatory. We won't force you, but it's an opportunity nonetheless. Uh, we should be pretty, pretty recognizable, just like last year. So if you want to avoid us, it shouldn't be hard. This is also true, yes. Bright, bright yellow fleeces tend to stand out. <laughs> okay, so that's about the raffle. So let's move on to the news for the week. And this time, Dave did more of his homework than I did. So you had three articles you want to talk about, and I only have, well, two and a half. So let's, uh, you go first. All right. So the first first one I have to talk about is uh, it's something I actually know very little about. So this will be a kind of an interesting conversation. Let's see, <laughs> see how that goes. Uh, but I was, um, you know, going through the news, and Apache Beam has become a top-level project. So first of all, congratulations to everybody and anybody involved in Apache Beam. Whenever a, a project reaches, um, you know, full project status, in Apache, that's it's a big deal. It means they've the the project itself um, has reached a, a level of maturity uh, and a level of community integration that's beyond just you know a single organization contributing to it. So it's always a pretty it's a pretty cool uh, moment in a in the project lifecycle. To me, it suggests that it's something that's it's really worth uh, taking a look at now. Um, so I thought I'd take a look at it <laughs> and. Uh, I, I hadn't. I've seen Apache Beam sort of um, now and again, but I hadn't really spent any time looking at exactly what it is or what it does. Um, and uh, so there's there's a few links in the show notes if you want to know more. But essentially, it, it's uh, so the description on the on the uh, the site is Apache Beam provides a, an advanced unified programming model, allowing you to implement batch and streaming data processing jobs that can run on any execution engine. Um, now I'm not very bright, so it took me a little while. 
while to work out what that actually means. <laughs> but essentially, it, it's uh, it's like a it provides a programming framework that allows you to um, you know write um, data flows um, either batch or streaming uh, that can be executed against not any. Uh, execution engine, but a variety of different execution engines. And uh, there's a couple of other links um, that uh, you'll find in the show notes. Uh, and essentially, um, at the moment, it seems to be primarily focused around um, either sort of uh, executing against uh, Google Cloud Dataflow, um, Apache Flink, or Apache Spark. Um, so you can write your code in uh, in Apache Beam uh, and then execute it on, on, on any of these different um, uh, any of these different platforms. And it, it's quite it's quite interesting the the sort of a variety of uh, of information out there. Um, I've actually also linked. There was a, a session at Strata um, that the that the team ran, which um, I've I've located the uh, the slides for, and it really runs through a nice introduction to what Beam is. This is back when it was in, incubating still, uh, but it runs through what it is, how it can be used. There's a couple of code examples in the slides. Um, and it, it runs through sort of the various different times of you know different types of windowing you can do as a few exercises, so it's it's quite it's quite cool and quite interesting. Um, and then the final link you'll see in the show notes is um, is actually a, I think it's a slightly older article. It's from around kind of mid mid twenty sixteen, um, but it runs through you know not all engines are created equal so you can't actually do all of the operations in all of the engines and one of the nice things about this uh, particular google article is it provides a uh, an example of depending on which engine you're interested in which operations um, you can actually do and it, it breaks it down by like four major categories so the first is kind of what you're computing, so whether it's um, aggregators or uh, you're flattening things or combining them. Um, the second category is where in event time, so are you doing a global window, a fixed window, a sliding window, timestamp control, something like that. Um, and then the third category is when you're processing the data. So uh, are, are you configuring when this triggers, when it fires? Is it you know, based on processing time, is it event time driven? Um, and then the fourth category is uh, how how do the refinements relate? So is it is it discarding stuff? Is it accumulating stuff? Is it accumulating and retracting? So not all of these things make total sense to me. I'm still very very um, very early on in my understanding of Beam, but it does sound kind of interesting. And anything that makes the development of solutions easier on this kind of front, I find, I find sort of, I find very interesting, very useful. I, I don't know, I don't know enough yet to to really know the answer to this question, but I'm, I'm wondering how close this is to um, cascading, which is another kind of software abstraction layer development framework, which was, uh, you know, it's primarily focused around Apache Hadoop and Apache Flink. Um, so I, I, I think it's a similar sort of thing, but it, it's it's more focused around kind of data flows than just generic programming. Uh, that's as I understand it, anyway. 
But yeah. I haven't heard much from Cascading anymore. No. Pretty central no. part of any Hadoop stack, and it's still in there, but it's really dropped off the map. Now, when you started talking about Beam, I was thinking, this is an Uzi replacement, no workflow management stuff, but it looks a lot more like a, I don't know, streaming data thing. Yeah, yeah, it would be very, very much, well, it, very it does streaming. say batch and streaming, but it's very I much, I can stream you know, a batch, of course, but the whole idea yeah. of being have small, uh, small events and then do something with those events, a bit of windowing and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not really yeah. a, a workflow programming environment, no. it's actually, it's it's more basic than that, it's more deep than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's about being able to actually, you know, use the SDKs to, you know, create your data workflow or whatever it is, and then actually run that on a, a variety of different execution engines. Yes. So it actually says yeah. it distributes on backends, which include Apex, which I don't know, Flink, Spark, and yeah, what you would mention there, the Google Dataflow. Yeah. So this sounds a bit like it's closer to the, I don't know, the Kafka Stream uh, framework, perhaps. But Could more, be, but more generic. Where Kafka is very much Kafka, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, more yeah. a abstraction layer around things you could plug in. But yeah, interesting. Kind of interesting. So I, I, I'm guessing that uh, you know one of the one of the reasons that it got through uh, incubating status to full project status is actually what they call the runners, the the number of backends that it supports. Yep. So as you mentioned, Apex is now added. That was that wasn't in the initial. Uh, the initial list, and yeah, with Flink and Spark being the other external ones, Google Cloud Dataflow is, of course, where where it originally came from. Um, okay. So, and, and it's actually it started off as as the the SDK essentially for Google Cloud Dataflow, and there's um, it, yeah. it's it's kind of worth reading the, the the final article in the list because that actually talks about uh, Google sort of historically had a uh, lob a research paper over the wall um, approach to uh, sharing innovations with the uh, with the open source community. You know things like the original MapReduce um, paper, but uh, you know this is this is one of their first examples apparently of actually sharing the innovation, sharing the code, and actually working with the community. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's kind of nice. It's it's a bit it's a bit beyond me if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> But I'm still finding it fairly interesting. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, if it actually integrates with uh, Hadoop and becomes part of a stack somewhere or just stays on the periphery. I mean, both are fine, of course. Yeah. And just looking yeah. at the committer list, and it's very Google heavy at the moment. You get Data Artisans in there with three people. Yeah. And, yeah. and then Talent with one, Slack has one, and something called Atrato, which I don't know, to be honest. No, not familiar with them. Uh, well, they'll need to get more people in there if they want to keep their Apache status. Yeah, yeah, and I think the as as we see the the runners as they call them mm-hmm. um, sort of increase. I'm guessing that will that will drive uh, increased uh, committers as well. That's kind of strange that I don't see in the committer list anybody that I recognise from the Spark uh, group, which is the only group I have followed a little bit where I could recognise names. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think uh, anyway, my guess is that Spark is is there because it's it's the it's still considered the the new hotness and anything yeah. that, that what anything wants to be anything needs to work with Spark. Which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's good for 
it gives them some, I know, some weight, I guess. And it's maybe not so good because it all it's the, the, the 100 pound gorilla and everything has to be latched onto it. But I think it's nice that both Flink and Spark are in the runners. Yeah. Because they're pretty similar projects. Don't, I don't want to fight a war here, but they live in the same space. <laughs> but if it was only Spark, that would have been sad. Having Spark and Flink in there does show that they're open. That's good. Yeah. Not too yeah, sad. Indeed. Anyway, congratulations to the Apache Beam team. Even sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you then. Over to me. Well, I'm not as uh, optimistic, I'm afraid. Mine's a bit of a downer. And it's, I guess you could say it's a sign of Hadoop actually becoming, uh, I don't know, adult, um, uh, mature. That's the word I was looking for. Because just like uh, we had our first news about uh, viruses attacking OSX now, which apparently means that OSX has now a mainstream operating system. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not taking sides here either. <laughs> but there have been a couple of uh, articles in the news this week, these last two weeks, about uh, ransomware attacking Hadoop clusters. Yeah. Now, the first article I found, first link in the show notes, is an article I would actually say it's FUD. Confusion, fear, because it's a oh my god, Hadoop is dangerous. Don't use it and do this to change it. And I don't like this article at all because it's very inflammatory. Let's call it that. And of course, clusters can be vulnerable. But reading this article, you would kind of take away Hadoop is by definition and insecure. But Basically, if you read the article, what they're saying is it's a computer cluster, and if you don't put any security on there, it's going to be vulnerable, which makes sense, yeah. right? Yep, yep. There's um, there was actually a, a HortonWorks released a security advisory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was last last week. Yeah. Um, uh, end of last which, week. This week. That's right. Which which is basically essentially if you if you allow your cluster to be viewed publicly across the internet and it is unsecured, i.e. it is not Kerberized and the authentication is defined as simple, um, then it is at risk. And honestly, if, if you've, if, if you haven't secured the endpoints and it's on a public IP address and the ports are open and it's unsecured, non-Kerberized, simple authentication, Really, in my opinion, you deserve to be hacked. You deserve all your data to be deleted, and and I hope you learn from that lesson because you're clearly um, well. They're, they're providing a world. service to the rest of the world because by being open, they're a honeypot, right? All the hackers go for their their systems, and my systems are more secure that way. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, it, it's it's pretty poor to be honest. If 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 you if you've made all of those mistakes. And fixing any one of those things um, will make you, you know, not a target for this uh, um, this this public environment, this public um, attack. But yeah, it's it's pretty poor. Yeah, it also feels cool. a bit to me like it was the Mongo scare, of course, where the Mongo uh, databases got ransomware. Yeah, and the articles I've read are more like, uh, oh yeah, this is a dupe thing too, and it might happen there, and then that quickly became, it is happening there, but nobody has really shown me anybody that actually has been held up for ransom here. No. But, no. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this article is also bad, because uh, how can you change this problem? Well, ensure security is on. <laughs> 
It doesn't even yeah. talk about Kerberos. I don't know. Now, on the plus side, this does reference somebody called the GDI Foundation, which I had never heard of. Maybe should just put a show note in that, uh, a link in the show notes for that as well. Mm-hmm. If you go to their website, they call themselves the safer internet for everybody and everywhere. I haven't looked into these guys at all, but they say they are the non-profit organization and their mission is to defend and free open internet by t- trying to make it safer. And the reason I'm mentioning them is I actually, well, not me personally, but one of our customers actually got an email from them telling them that their uh, sandbox was unsecure. They were running one of the mm-hmm. uh, Hortonworks sandboxes just to play around with stuff. They didn't have any data in there at all. Yeah. But it did have an open link uh, to the internet, and they actually sent an email to them. So apparently these guys are, I don't know, port scanning the whole internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh well. People are looking out for you, apparently. That's good. Anyway, this article is the bad version of it. Uh, there's a second link in there from ThreatGeek, which is a little more, I don't know, saying about the whole thing and actually explaining what the issue is, what you should look for, and how you can, uh, yeah, maybe not. They don't tell you how to save solve it, because basically you know how to solve this problem. Just make sure the cluster is secure. Dave and I have been talking about this for years now. Security is important. But, um, well, in our predictions for 2017 we already talked about the security issues going to be happening and apparently we're off to a good start depending on Indeed. how you interpret good <laughs> <laughs> yeah very true very true anyway moral of the story open clusters are bad take security seriously people yeah please 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 just apply at least the basics of security thank you and Kerberos <laughs> is pretty much the basic part Kerberos yeah. or else Yep. Kerberize your clusters, people. It's not an option. It's mandatory. So Hortonworks, make it easier for us and Cloudera. <laughs> yeah. Because it's still a bit of an issue. I mean, it's not easy to do, really. There's a lot of things going on automatic now when you have the uh, magic button saying Kerberize this cluster, but you still have to do a lot of work, not only in the cluster itself, because, well, that's an ecosystem that's pretty well fit together and works pretty well, but then you have to allow your applications to actually use the data in your Hadoop cluster to access that data. And that's usually where the issues get, because that's, I don't know, a, a system somewhere else in another data center that needs to get data or store data or an analyst with a, I don't know, an Excel spreadsheet, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's getting easier. Mm-hmm. It will never be, I don't think, just, you know, one button click and it's all done just because of the nature of the interaction that you have to have with a variety of other external systems. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a chicken it, and the acting as well, right? As long as people don't always do this, people won't develop the tools to make it easier. As yeah, long as people don't yeah. develop the tools to make it easier, people will say, it's too hard, I'm not doing it. So, True enough. Have you seen a lot of adoption of uh, Apache Knox, actually? Because Apache Knox is the thing that should make this easier by abstracting away the kerberization of your cluster. It'll take care of that. You can just have a single sign-on. So if you just want to connect to a uh, REST interface, a REST uh, endpoint, you can just do it through Knox. And it's been around for a long time, but I haven't seen it evolve that much anymore. And whenever I talk to a customer that has this specific issue and I talk to them about Knox, they're what? didn't know that existed so definitely i would say over the last 12 months or so i'm pretty sure every 
customer that I've worked with has deployed Knox and made it part of their infrastructure. Hmm. I can't okay. think of any organization that hasn't. So it's definitely it's becoming more more mainstream in terms of being a standard component. I mean, I guess it helps that I always <laughs> recommend it as well because – for exactly the reasons that you mentioned, it provides that level of perimeter security. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that um, Cloudera also have a. I think it's. I, I don't think it's actually released yet. But I believe they are coming up with their own um, project that is very very similar to Knox. Um, I I kind of heard that. Uh, last year, but I haven't actually seen anything that's released about it yet. So I'm I'm assuming that there is something on the horizon there, although I, as I say, not seen it in in the uh, in the public yet. Yeah, because that's one of the, I was going to talk about this too. The the thing that the Nox is only available uh, by default in uh, the HTTP from Hortonworks. On the other hand, it's a separate project. It's not really that integrated with the other components uh, obviously there's going to be a template file with a configuration file which is uh, made to work with a standard HTTP cluster but how hard can it be to make Nox work on a Cloudera cluster? Uh, it's actually not particularly difficult mm. I think the It's just a mapping right? Mapping in the yeah, standpoint I think sadly the, the issue isn't uh, it isn't technical it's political I think there's there's always an element of uh, NIH syndrome not invented here, and I I think that's what we're seeing here. I mean, Knox is actually one of the fairly major contributors to Knox is IBM. They have it within mm. their uh, yeah. within their distro as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. now of course, if Cloudera does uh, have success with their solution to this problem and it gets some traction, that might be good as well from the point of view of having some competition in the area. Because as Very I said, much. I haven't seen Nox evolve quite that much in the last couple of months or even half year. Maybe because there's no competition. If there is competition, then you get this uh, war of escalating innovation. Hey, Indeed. That's a nice term. Competition is good. <laughs> so, good luck to both of them. And I'm hoping to see more of this uh, deployed in the field, to be, uh, to be honest. Yeah, very much so. So, that's my doomsdaying. Back to you. <laughs> so, I've, I, love a, I love a little infographic. Uh, and uh, this one's just a short and sweet article, Four Types of Data Analytics. And it, it just provides a nice, um, uh, a nice example of running through, um, it, moving through sort of levels of complexity of data analytics. There's also, if you take a look at the uh, the article, there's a link to uh, a pretty good um, TED talk, which is uh, which is from a guy named Hans Rosling, um, who runs through sort of data insights and, and that sort of thing. That's that's, that's pretty interesting. So I I thoroughly recommend looking at that. But back to the article. So the the four the four types in there in their view are sort of the moving from most basic to um, most complex, it, the first one is descriptive, just understanding, having analytics to understand what is actually happening at any given point in time it should be fairly uh, understandable. The, the second one is diagnostic, um, so why something is actually happening. Um, the third is predictive, uh, what is likely to happen in the future. 
Uh, and usually most people think of predictive analytics being kind of the, the peak of things. But actually, in their view, the peak is prescriptive analytics, which is uh, what do I need to do? Um, so it's it's the buildup of the understanding of all of the other other areas. I just think it, they've, they've got some nice explanations um, of uh, of how these things uh, how these things all plug together and why it's important. Plus, the TED Talk link is pretty cool. So yeah, yeah, I've seen these t- terms before. Actually, it's uh, the thing I'm talking most about in my current day job. Because I'm doing a lot of uh, machine learning things. And if you're talking machine learning, you're coming from the descriptive, which is pretty much the, I don't know, statistical approach of it, if you like. And then diagnostic, yeah. predictive, and prescriptive. Now, prescriptive, that's the holy grail at the moment. It doesn't really exist yet. But the idea behind it being, I've, in my opinion, is that if you can predict the future, that's one thing. But to make the future, I don't know, to make that prediction actionable, interesting, yeah. how can I influence it? Which is, of course, kind of contradictory, because if you change the prediction, you're no longer predicting it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but that's that's why it's all iterative, isn't it? It's all, it, you know, it, you, you're never done with this. You 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 actually, you, you run through this once and then you continue to iterate it as the conditions change. Yeah, it's the butterfly effect. <laughs> so, yeah, nice. Yeah, nice article. Over to you. Over to me, well, my final one, because since last uh, episode we had a news-only show because we talked too much about the news, I'm going to keep it short. So I've got one more article, and it's, let me take the link with it, that way I can read the title, Making Big Data User-Friendly for Small Businesses, and it's a very recent one, from January 19th. And I just put it in there because it kind of, uh, our faithful listeners will know that we've actually had an episode on small business and how they could use uh, big data. And as we have actually noticed before, this is another person on the internet plagiarizing our episode and just writing it down nicely. (laughs) (laughs) It uh, pretty much mirrors what we talked about. And yeah, same idea. Big, small, big data is not only for big business. Small business definitely can get uh, their efforts, uh, their efforts worth out of it. Uh, how they should approach it, uh, why they should doing it, where they should get their data. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking on it, but it's a nice recap, if you like, of the episode of it. Uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I guess. Nice, yeah. See, big data is for small business as well, just like we said it was. Yeah, we just we were just too early. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, link in the show notes. Yep, and one final story that I'm not even. I'm, I'm going to mention the title. Um, I'm going to make my feelings known, and then I'm not going to talk any more about it. Um, Dave but, uh, his feelings. Uh, but so the article title is "Mapar claims open source big data victory with patent award." That deserves a drum roll. Yeah, and they they're basically painting <laughs> an architecture that they call the converged data platform. They've painted and that. I, they've they've apparently so. How can you do? I, hey? I, yeah. Because the converged data platform is just a group of open source Apache uh, projects, as far as I know. How can you well patent well, that? You could you could do that, but of course, MapR is it, there's a load of proprietary stuff here. So MapR streams, MapR DB, MapRFS. Yeah, but I mean MapRFS. That's already a patent they have, I would assume. 
uh, MapRDB. I'm looking at the page now, and there's a little graphic in there, and yeah, you've got that MapRDB, but you get Hadoop in the same block. If I've got HBase, I really need something else? No comment. Oh, they have something <laughs> streaming as well, so they don't... Yeah, they have Spark and they have MapR streams. Yeah. Uh, they don't have Storm, on the other hand, so yeah, they cut something out. Maybe they patented that. It is a bit of a reverse way, right? I mean, we've seen Hortonworks being open source all the time, which I fully endorse. We've seen Cloudera making strides towards open sourceism. Is that a word? Yep. I don't think so. Anyway, they're doing they're going the right way, we think at least. We being Dave and I, I think. Yep. So I mean every company in the world is doing business for the sake of earning money because they have to pay the people they employ. No yep. problem there, but you can do it in different ways. HTTP, Hortonworks, that's why I used to work there. Cloudera is yeah, going the right way, needs some convincing perhaps, but this is just the <laughs> 180 degree different direction, right? Innovation is not created through patents. That's all I'm going to say. <sighs> Moving on. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Well, let's move on to the next section then. We've had the news. We've spent uh, more than half an hour on it again, so it's more than long enough. The rest of the news will be in the next episode. In the main section for this podcast episode, we actually have two guests from uh, Hortonworks, and they are going to talk about what can actually go wrong with Hadoop when you install Hadoop, when you configure Hadoop. And these guys are actually quite technical. Uh, I used to know them when I worked at Hortonworks, and I guess you still know them because you still work at Hortonworks, Safe. <laughs> Indeed. But they're quite technical, and they've been looking into issues that occur on uh, Hadoop clusters around the world and giving people hints and tips on how to avoid making the same mistakes again. And they actually have a nice piece of software. Uh, they built a service around, which is called SmartSense, which is a nice tool which can help you avoid these same old mistakes again and again. So, unless you have something else to add... Nothing else from me. Then let's go to music and make it back. The interview with Paul Cudding and what's the other person's name? Sheetal Dolas. I didn't know yet how to pronounce it, so that's why I asked Dave. <laughs> <laughs> See you after the break. Welcome. We have two special guests here today. Uh, three if you include Jan, but he's not really a guest. Um, oh, thank so you. We've got, <laughs> so we've got uh, Paul Codding, who's uh, Product Management Director at Hortonworks. Say hi, Paul. Hey, everyone. And uh, we've got uh, Sheetal Dulles, who's Engineering Leader, Architect, and Big Data Champion, also at Hortonworks. Say hi, Sheetal. Hi, everyone. All right, excellent. So, um, we're here today to talk about what people get wrong uh, when deploying Hadoop. And uh, we've got two thoroughly expert people here to talk about it. Uh, so perhaps uh, you each want to say a little, a couple of words about, about yourselves and what you've been, what you've been up to. Uh, Paul, maybe do you want to go first? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, so hey, everyone. So I've been at Hortonworks for just about five years now. I started in the solution engineering department, so I work with our customers on helping them understand Hadoop, get it deployed, and start being successful with the product. And about two and a half years ago, I moved from the solution engineering, that kind of like field engineering role, into product management. 
And that's where we started um, the SmartSense project, and I've recently also taken on the Apache Ambari project. So happy to be here, and thanks for the invite. All right, great. And uh, Sheetal? Sure. Hi, my name is Sheetal, and um, I have been in big data space for almost more than seven years, and have played different roles, right, from uh, being a cluster administrator, installing Hadoop and entire Hadoop ecosystem, using it for developing applications. Uh, been working with Hortonworks for more than uh, four and a half years. There also worked in different capacities, including working with customers and consulting some of the very large big data initiatives and have seen Hadoop very, very closely or in fact, entire big data space very, very closely, worked with different customers, different situations, and literally have been into many, many Hadoop wars. And I'm so excited to talk about some of the war stories today. And hopefully they'll get you some insights and help you make your Hadoop journey much more rewarding. Absolutely. Uh, everybody loves a good war story. Everybody loves to hear about uh, all the things that go horribly wrong. So hopefully they uh, they don't happen to them and they can get that fixed up front. So I, I guess, you know, where, where this journey usually starts is, is people sort of uh, getting their first cluster um, up and running and, you know, they, they start tinkering with it. Maybe they've got their first use case. Um, uh, Paul, what what are some of the things that that you see people kind of getting really wrong really early? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a there's a lot of decisions that people have to make when they're initially starting their journey. I think it, you know hardware, choosing the right hardware, networking, getting the operating system installed, getting the cluster up and running to the point at which they can start the install. But I think the things that we see customers trip trip over quite a bit are a lot of environment related problems. And, and these are things that sometimes Linux is not the primary operating system for the customer, or they um, they don't have a lot of governance around making sure that each environment that they stamp out meets the same type of performance and security and configuration baselines. And that can affect um, our customers' performance, the availability of our software, and things of that nature. And so those are the things I think we can kind of talk through. What are the kind of top five, top six environment-related issues that we've seen over the last five years, and we continue to see in customers' clusters. So I would say the first one that has a pretty large effect, in this case, on the performance of the cluster is uh, Transparent Huge Pages, or THP for short. This is something that was a pretty big problem for us, I would say, about two years ago, because it affects older versions of Red Hat and CentOS, like uh, RHEL 6, CentOS 6. And THP is a, it's a setting within the Linux kernel. It's uh, basically some optimizations to the memory management system that allows the kernel to more efficiently manage machines that have a lot of RAM. And this specific configuration can be helpful for some applications, um, but it can be harmful for others. So for Hadoop in specific, it, it really takes a toll on our performance. And if this is enabled, what you'll see across the cluster is an inordinately high amount of system CPU utilization. And so this is something that you typically wouldn't see. Usually system CPU, if you look across the cluster, might be you know anywhere from like seven to twelve percent, you know, kind of in that range. But what you'll see if you're affected by this um, is your system CPU can be almost up to like 80%, which is crazy. It just drowns out your user land processes. And what you'll normally see is uh, in the graph within something like Ambari or within Grafana is this huge, huge, like big, massive um, red in the graph uh, with system CPU being extremely large. The effect that this has on our components 
is you'll start seeing data nodes uh, go offline. You'll see region servers go offline as effectively their processes and the inter-process communications kind of drowned out by the um, CPU uh, just being completely consumed by this specific capability. And so we, we do notice that still quite a bit in uh, our customers' clusters, and we always want to give you recommendations to make sure that um, you turn that off. So we've built in some things within Ambari and as well as SmartSense to help detect those um, situations where you're affected by THP. The other thing that we notice quite a bit is just swappiness configuration. So this is something that's uh, a tunable parameter within Linux kernel. It basically ranges from like 0 to 100. And if swappiness being set to 0 basically means that the kernel is only going to use the swap subsystem if you're in an out-of-memory scenario, kind of worst-case scenario. And 100 means it's going to use it really, really frequently as much as possible. So what we see as a kind of a typical default for the operating system is that swappiness is set to 60. But what we usually recommend is we want to limit swap wherever possible. It's something that has a pretty degrading effect, especially on I.O.-sensitive components like Zookeeper. We want to make sure that you're using swap um, as, as infrequently as humanly possible. And so this is something that we want to make sure is set to something like 0 or 1, depending on the version of, of Linux that you're using. Uh, Paul, when you say not use swap, does that mean that you can run into uh, out-of-memory situations more easily then? Yeah, so it's one of those situations where, depending on the version of the Linux kernel, that's where we recommend either 0 or 1. Um, I think it's uh, two point, uh, It's a specific subset of 2.6. Setting it to 1 will mean basically it'll only use swap um, in if we get into an out-of-memory scenario. So you won't have the, the out-of-memory killer start you know, destroying processes. It will use swap, but only as kind of like a last result, or last resort, I should say. Okay, but this is also very dependent on the default set by the Linux operating systems. For the first one with the transparent huge pages, you said, I think, that uh, Red Hat and uh, CentOS are affected, but Ubuntu mm-hmm. and Debian aren't because their defaults are different? Is that... Uh... Yeah, what we've noticed is the, the, the situation where you have really, really high system CPU only seems to show up with older versions of, of RHEL and CentOS. We hadn't noticed that type of issue with uh, Ubuntu or Debian-based distributions and CentOS 7 or RHEL 7. Okay. Do you think that's a, a change default or just a change piece of kernel code that no longer is affected that much? Or Yeah, I think, I guess, and I'd have to confirm this, I think it's just a change in behavior of that memory management subsystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, the, the, especially the THP, I mean, I've seen a number of customers and organizations get bitten by that time and time again. Yeah, thankfully, as you say, with fewer and fewer people deploying on CentOS 6 and RHEL 6, that, that's uh, slowly fading away. But as you say, it still crops up. There are still people deploying new environments on, on RHEL and CentOS 6 today, despite it, personally thinking that's being a bit crazy because <laughs> uh, 7's been out for a while now. And, you know, really, if you're doing a new cluster build, you're going to want the, the longest lifecycle OS possible, I would yeah, think. Sometimes mm-hmm. companies, they need to uh, certify the operating systems for totally. to deploy it, and that takes time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the other things that we see, too, are, are just optimizations for uh, user group lookup, name service caching. So NSCD or SSSD are things that we also check for and make sure that it's enabled across the cluster. And these are situations where we want to make sure that our DNS resolution performance is, is, is excellent and our user and group resolution performance is excellent as well. So those two utilities help with caching user, group, and um, name 
lookups on the individual nodes in the cluster, just reducing the amount of latency that we have to spin up a container or in HDFS make a authorization decision on a, a you know create file or a read file operation. So those are things that we want to make sure is always enabled, always configured with a, a positive TTL to make sure we're actually caching um, that data for a good period of time. And that's something that we see a lot of our customers attempt you know, to do that, meaning um, if they have a 500-node cluster, 480 of those nodes will have NSCD enabled and configured properly. But it's the, the 20 you know, or so that either it's been forgotten or someone didn't run the, the right recipe to make sure that's enabled by default that can cause the biggest problem. Because I think what we notice with these environment-related issues is people try to have a homogenous environment from a configuration perspective, but a lot of times it just doesn't happen, which the end result is you get sporadic runtime issues or sporadic job failures or um, spurious alerts within um, Ambari and things of that nature. And so that's where we try to you know, make sure we're detecting this on every single machine and showing you, hey, this is, this is a subset of boxes that just don't have the configuration where it should be. It's it's kind of interesting because one of the things that I've advocated for a very long time is have have a robust configuration management platform. I don't really care what it is, you know, Puppet, Chef, um, you know, pick pick your uh, poison of choice, but have have something that you can apply these kind of things. Um, and that, you know, will externally check them because someone will, you know, forget or someone will, um, you know, hand hack a default change because they think it's required or, you know, something will happen down the line. And there's nothing more frustrating than having sort of a part of your environment that all of a sudden starts to behave strangely and not being able to identify exactly why that is. It still still surprises me that organizations deploy these kind of things with just, you know, fire once scripts at setup and and don't apply a proper configuration management platform to them. Yeah, and I, I, I completely, completely agree. agree. Yeah, we, yeah we, we, we all echo that same. <laughs> I think it's, it's one of those situations where I think a lot of customers having you know, 100, 200 Linux boxes on the floor is something that's different for them, right? Yeah. And it does present kind of a unique challenge, and having a, a good configuration management system is critical, not only to make sure your configuration is you know, homogenous across um, the cluster, but also when something goes wrong, Let's say you're in the middle of an upgrade, you got to run a, a specific command or run a script on all the nodes in the cluster. You know, looking at a 500 node cluster and then, identif- and then saying, I don't have PDSH or I don't have Ansible or name your other utility. Having to log into each of those boxes to run a script is just a complete nightmare for everyone involved. So, yeah. 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 Would you it's say this, this has changed? Because uh, I don't know, five years ago, these Hadoop clusters usually went in kind of a guerrilla style. Somebody started a little cluster in the background and didn't get into the big enterprise-wide systems, so it didn't get into the configuration management. Do you f- see a difference now that that does happen less often? I think because the maturity of the platform, and we have much, we have much more different types of mature organizations adapting the platform. Yeah. That is not as much of an issue now, but okay. the, the thing that we do still see is a situation where the Hadoop operations team needs something that's going to be outside of the typical enterprise yeah. standard, meaning they're like, we're going to use super micro boxes and we're going to use this specific thing that we need an exception for. And so the enterprise IT is like, okay, you guys are on your own, <laughs> which means that a lot of the rigor and a lot of the configuration management stuff is up to them. And sometimes that's just not their specialty, right? They're they're here to run jobs and, and crunch data, not necessarily to be 
you know, DevOps or SRE type resources. Now, when I'm adding those to a cluster, or I'm changing something or I'm looking at something that doesn't work very well and I'm trying to figure it out, would you say it's better to have a less than optimal configuration across the system consistently or have an inconsistent cluster where some of the nodes, I try something else and the rest keep it stable on the old settings? Would you recommend always change everything across the cluster or go with little 10 nodes here and see how it works? That's a great question. I think Sheila can chime in as well. I think for me, I would rather have something misconfigured across the cluster rather than, let's say you have 100 nodes, you got 10 that are misconfigured, 90 that are fine, mainly because you might you know, misconfigure those 10, walk away. Two days later, you got some jobs failing or containers aren't launching or something. It's just weird. You know, I run the job four times and two times it fails. I don't know why. Um, yeah, so goes to inconsistency. Yeah, because it's hard to troubleshoot. This yeah, is really yeah, difficult yeah, yeah. to point. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree to to a large extent that uh, in most of the cases when the Hadoop clusters are homogeneous, I would rather prefer them to be uh, consistent and consistently wrong, because that makes it much more easier to either have predictable performances or even for debugging and finding issues. Where are there are always cases where uh, because Hadoop is such a flexible thing. It lets you run on different platforms. It can potentially let you run on heterogeneous cluster where you have certain types of hardware having different configuration, certain nodes having completely different configurations. Mm -hmm. In such cases, uh, in order to take the right um, uh, benefit of each of the hardware type, uh, in those cases, I would prefer to have hardware-specific configurations. Mm -hmm. However, when the cluster is homogeneous, then I would be wrong everywhere or I would be right everywhere rather than being right 90% of the time and being wrong only 10%. Because that's, that costs a lot. I have seen people spending days and nights and having downtimes just to find that one inconsistent thing. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, that, that's the kind of interesting thing. As, as clusters grow, people, by their very nature, just add different types of hardware because what they were deploying initially is, you know, goes out of out of service and mm -hmm. new hardware is coming along all the time. Um, you see different workloads coming along. People are, you know, doing more stuff in memory, doing more Spark, which generally speaking requires more RAM. So, you know, definitely not just the the sort of hardware models are changing, but the in my in my experience, the specifications that people are rolling out are also significantly ch changing. Yeah, and I think what, it, what my term for that is like a multi generation cluster. You know, you've got your initial yeah. set of ten. And then you need more RAM, need more spindles. The next set of 20 that you order are going to be completely different. And that presents a, a challenge in and of itself to make sure that, you know, to Sheetal's point, the configuration that you're using on those machines that maybe have double the RAM or, you know, two extra spindles are configured to take advantage of the hardware. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. So this actually reminds me of a very interesting situation we had in production sometime back for one of our customers where a customer was running a query. That query was going to aggregate um, daily um, sales. And what was happening is that every time you run a query, typically around midnight, uh, you would get different results. So data was not changing. The input data was exactly the same. But every time you run the same query, you would get different results. And we literally spent like three days to find out what's wrong. And you know what was wrong? There was one node in the cluster which had different time zones. So the day boundary, 
So when the task gets executed on that node, the day boundary for that node is different than day boundary for other nodes. So based yeah, on which task yeah. gets executed on that node or how many tasks get executed <laughs> on that node, your no- the results would vary. So that's why we say that be wrong everywhere. Right <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. It only took you three days to find. That's good. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing is, this is something that's a lot more prevalent than we originally thought, <clears throat> and that's been that's what's been kind of interesting about the project that we have, in which we can we can say, hey, let's introduce a rule that checks for that and see how often it fires and, and for how many clusters are affected by that specific issue. So, having time zones that are not in sync across every node in the cluster is something that. I would say we've seen about 15% of the clusters we have, which was kind of shocking to me. Yeah. yeah. You're it's talking production of... clusters here, not just test and dev test clusters. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. production clusters. And that's something that, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought normally <clears throat> until Sheila had told me that story, I would not have thought of that that would be a problem. But um, it, a lot of it is also dependent on the specific hive UDFs that you're using. So it's kind of a combination of this is where the environment and the stack, you know, kind of bleed together. If you're using this UDF and you have this misconfiguration, you can have this problem. But to Shiro's point, I mean, three days to troubleshoot that, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's the thing, is that a lot of these um a lot of these kind of considerations, especially when you're you're down at the environment level, they're kind of things that as an administrator, you innately trust that all of that stuff is correctly set up because of course it is you know why wouldn't it be and you know having something external that will go ahead and and sort of actually verify that and point out i know you thought all of these things con- were consistent but actually you know check check these time zone settings on these nodes it's it's an invaluable um, safety net yeah i think that's where that's another challenge of just using Hadoop in, in an enterprise or I would say in any kind of large-scale company is because the responsibilities are usually split up between a lot of disparate different teams. You've got one team that's going to give you the hardware, you know, rack stack, ping power and pipe, right? Yeah. You've got another team that's going to lay down the operating system and make sure that's quote-unquote consistent. And then yeah. once you've got that, you've got the Hadoop Ops team who's basically like, okay, to your point, I'm going to make an assumption that you guys have done your job and now I'm going to do my job. But the breakdown is when one of those things fails, you know. Um, there's misconfiguration here, but the Hadoop Ops guys don't think about it because a lot of the times they're not exact. You know, they might not be operating system guys. You know, they might not yeah. think about the full stack, yeah. and so that that does present kind of a unique challenge because it's kind of like a layer cake of responsibilities yeah, instead of one yeah, team yeah. to rule them all. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what else do you see in the kind of the environment level that that kind of court trips people up? Yeah, the other thing I think is just around um, how you choose to, where you choose to place your services and how to configure them optimally. One of the things that we're seeing is Zookeeper is an incredibly relied upon and very important component within Hadoop. You know, every major component we have relies upon Zookeeper. And so one of the things that not a lot of our customers kind of think about are we need to make sure we're doing specific things to increase the performance and uptime of Zookeeper because if um, you have either performance issues or reliability issues with Zookeeper, it has a a cascade effect on the rest of the components within the cluster. So one of the things that we do see customers doing a lot, which we're trying to get ahead of, is when they configure the Zookeeper data or data log directories, they're putting it on the same spindle or on the same file system as like a data node data directory or name node namedir or node manager log or local directory. 
And this is a, a problem because you know, each of those different components are going to kind of pound the disks that uh, you give them. And Zookeeper is very um, dependent on having good and reliable I.O. for its performance. And so if you share that directory or that spindle with one of the other resources in the cluster, it can have pretty negative effects um, that can be felt across the cluster. And that's one of the things that we are trying to get ahead of. Like I said, warning people, make sure they understand, hey, look, if you're setting up a real cluster, um, you need to make sure that Zookeeper's got dedicated disks. Yeah, I mean, even dedicated hosts may, because uh, coming from the cloud world myself, I can say that uh, at Microsoft, we actually add three extra nodes to each cluster for free just to run the, the node keeper, the uh, zookeepers on. Of course, these are VMs, a lot smaller than chassis, so it makes more sense. But just people don't even see them just to make sure that they're separate mm-hmm. from the rest. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because a lot of on-prem clusters have the two head nodes and those get a zookeeper and the third zookeeper goes onto a, a data node. Or a, a data node, yeah. So mm-hmm. you get an yeah. consistency again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true, yep. And so there's things like that, but I think the, the other things that in the environment and those type of misconfigurations can, can cause a lot of reliability issues and some performance issues. But I think where we see the, the biggest boost in kind of bang for your buck when it comes to configuration changes that influence performance or what, what Sheila can kind of talk about as far as how we configure things like Yarn and HDFS for optimal performance and get some big performance speedups. Yeah, so maybe maybe moving moving up the stack then, you know, Sheetal, where, where are the where are the sweet spots? Where are the things that um, as you move up into some of the Hadoop configurations, really, you know, really make an impact? Sure, sure. And I I would like to um, also uh, uh, quote some of the real life situations and give you an example of such things. But I would like to start with uh, setting the context that Hadoop is really amazing at kind of use cases that it can support. It's such a flexible system that it can let you run different types of workloads for your own needs. It can let you use different type of hardware. There's absolutely no specific boundaries there. And with this flexibility uh, comes the responsibility of understanding that and making sure that you use the right knobs for your purpose. If you don't, then you might actually end up getting uh, different issues. And the typical issues that we have seen, uh, we would fit into three different categories. Um, the issues that cause um, uh, lower performance, the issues that cause um, operational uh, downtimes or uh, operational um, havocs and nightmares, and issues that can lead into uh, potentially security threats. Uh, most of the times we have seen issues that impact performance and operations. So just to highlight um, uh, some of our core services like HDFS and Yarn, um, I'll start with HDFS first. And this is a real-life situation where we had one customer um, who had a name node that was periodically becoming unresponsive. And things used to work perfectly fine until some time, but suddenly it became unresponsive. And they had HS setup. So uh, fortunately, uh, one name node becomes unresponsive, it will fail over to the other name node. But unfortunately, in this case, the failed over node again would become unresponsive in some time <laughs> and then fall back again to the first one. Yeah. And this would keep happening again and again, like fail over and fail back. Would you guess what might be the issue? Time zone? It was, yeah. It was, <laughs> time zone was a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was all because of the garbage collection. 
The name nodes are very, very sensitive to the heap management and heap sizes and garbage issues because they are one of the biggest Java processes that have huge heap and that manage a lot of data sets. Now, the question comes is that, what is the right heap size for me? And even if I configure right heap size for me right now, is it going to be right for future? Because things keep changing. You keep adding more data, your metadata would increase. Uh, so what is right for you today may not be right for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Also, the questions are that, um, what uh, GC options should I use? Should I use parallel GC or should I, what, what kind of configuration should I, I have? These are the kind of questions that keep coming back again and again. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is no uh, right answer uh, forever. There's, there's a right answer for that point in time. So you have to actually have your heap calculations done based on your cluster uh, situation. For example, your name node heap depends on things like what is your current heap utilization, as well as how many objects your name node is managing in your HDFS file system. And there are certain best practices. And as these things change, you need to keep tuning and tweaking your heap sizes because having too low or even too high heap sizes can cause in long GCs and cause in failovers. I mean, things like uh, things that can make that particular condition worse, are, are, you know, like the the HDFS small files problem. You know, if you if you start exactly. storing lots and lots of small files, you'll hit this these kind of issues a lot a lot earlier, as I understand it. True, true, and and the fi- number of files, number of blocks, that definitely is going to drive majority of your heap sizes. But there are also other other things like how many data nodes you have in the system, because name node has to serve all those data nodes. So it has to have enough heap to manage those. Number of transactions that you're performing, because it also has to have space for generating new objects and garbaging those. So knowing what is your actual heap size or right heap size, uh, knowing what should be your new generation size, should it be this much, that much, should be percentage of the total heap, what percentage, and so on. Those are very daunting questions, and they need to be answered again and again periodically in, in the system to make it sh- make sure that um, you don't have situations like things are working fine for a few months and suddenly they start failing apart. It has to be continuously monitored and tuned. Yeah. I mean, are there, are there sort of particular um, calculations and guidelines that we could point uh, some of our listeners to if they have some of those, some of that situation? Yes, there are. Actually, it's a, the, we do have a pretty detailed um, post on uh, the Horton Rust connection where um, we have detailed out how to calculate the heap sizes, what it depends on, how to set your heap size, how to set your new generation, what are the uh, good optimal flags for garbage collections. Um, so there, there's a detailed analysis there. Unfortunately, it's too detailed to explain here right now in the talk, <laughs> but uh, if, if people are interested and they search for um, uh, name node heap size uh, calculations, they would find a blog on Hortonworks uh, connections. Oh, if you Great. Get that link, we'll, we'll put we'll, it in uh, the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put a link in the show notes, and everyone will be able to go and have a uh, grab a cup of coffee and, and sit down and wait through it. That's about all we have time for today. Sadly. Uh, thanks again to Paul and Sheetal for running through um, 
all of the things that can go wrong with Hadoop, and more importantly, how you can fix them. That's the most important bit. Uh, I hope you found that useful and interesting. Uh, this is, remember, this is actually part one. The The interview went long, and it was pretty interesting, so we decided we split it up into two different chunks. You can uh, catch the second half of this uh, in two weeks' time. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with that exact episode. Uh, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information. Send us your feedback and questions via the feedback form on our website or even just drop us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Don't forget... Uh, we've actually got this uh, this raffle live, so please feel free to retweet or otherwise publicize the Roaring Elephant podcast, and uh, that will get you a ticket entry into the uh, into the raffle. And we are raffling off a free ticket, a free pass to the DataWorks Summit in Munich. So we look forward to uh, seeing what all sorts of exciting things you get up to, publicizing the Roaring Elephant podcast, retweeting our tweets, and generally getting excited about introducing new people to the Roaring Elephant. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. See you then. Goodbye.